Okay, open up your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. Praise God. Okay, Joel chapter 2. So excited to be continuing our series in the book of Joel. If you're joining us here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. Okay, Joel chapter 2, 1 through 11. This is God's word. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again. After them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve, from their paths, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is, is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Let's pray. Father, we worship you and we thank you so much for that time of worship. Father God, you are truly glorious and your word is living and active. And there are things that you are wanting to say to us. So Lord, open our hearts. In this very moment, Lord, calm all the distractions. Help our hearts to be filled with faith to hear and receive your word. And anything that is not from your word, Father, delete it from our minds. Father, what we need to hear more than anything, not my thoughts, not people's opinions, but we need to hear your word. So we thank you. Father, be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Many years ago when I was in seminary, I remember taking a class on leadership. It was literally my one class on leadership in my entire MDiv program. So I guess my program was really focused on teaching people the Bible, but not necessarily teaching us how to lead once we know the Bible. But anyway, I had this one class, and I remember doing this exercise in this leadership class, and it stood out to me because it was very weird, but it was memorable. But the teacher basically had us close our eyes, and he kind of quieted the class, and then he said, imagine your own funeral. And I'm like, this is very strange, and I'm actually kind of hungry, and I want to actually get to lunch. But he had us imagine our funeral. And he said, imagine what it might look like. Imagine who would be at your funeral. What people might say at your funeral. And so we went through this entire exercise. And the whole point of it was, he said, we need to begin where our life will end. And the reason why is because if we start at the very end, then that brings clarity to today, right? It brings clarity to our lives today. And I believe my professor, he took that exercise from a very popular book on leadership during that time. And it wasn't a Christian book, but it was a very popular book. And the author in that book called this habit, beginning with the end in mind. But listen to what this author said. He said, to begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so that you better understand where you are now. And so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. It's incredibly easy to get caught up in the activity trap, in the busyness of life, to work harder and harder at climbing the ladder of success, only to discover is leaning against the wrong wall. It is possible to be busy, very busy, without being very effective. And so this is true, whether it's Christian or not. And even though this is not from a Christian book or a book on theology, that principle is found in Scripture. It is. Because in the Bible, we know that God is the Alpha and what? The Omega. He is the first and the last. 
He sees all things from the beginning to the end. And because he sees all things, kind of like a comic strip, he sees all human history, the entirety of our lives, like a comic strip. When you look at a comic strip, you see the first frame all the way to the last frame. You see the whole thing, right? That is how God sees reality. And because of that, he does what? He reveals the end to us. He reveals the end of human history. He reveals the very end of his plan of redemption. And then he calls us to reflect on that end. And not only the end of his plans, but also our very lives. He says, reflect on it. Why? Because if we do, then we will begin to live in a certain way. So this is what God is constantly calling us in his word, is here is the end, and in light of that, how are you going to live? How are you going to live? And so now when we look at the book of Joel, we see God doing this exact same thing to the ancient Israelites. But in a time of terrible crisis, you know by now, but locusts had descended upon their land, devoured all of their food supply, famine had come, people were going to die, and in the midst of this crisis, God came with his word. And so he revealed to them what this crisis was all about, why it had come, and he basically said that this was the day of the Lord. So he said to his own people, you have the day of the Lord upon you. Why? Because idolatry is in your hearts. They had forsaken the one true God. They had put their hope in other gods who cannot hear, they cannot save, but rather enslave. So God revealed to them his word. He said, this crisis is from me. It is the day of the Lord. And here's why it's come. And he called them to mourn and repent and return to the Lord. And he said, if you do this, then I will renew not only your land, but your hearts. Okay, this is basically the message of Joel. And I've been saying this, but all of this is God's grace. In a time of crisis, when God comes and he speaks his word to you, it's his grace. And that could have been the end of God's message, right? He could have just ended it there. Joel's done. But God had a lot more to say. But he went far beyond the current crisis. And after describing what was happening in their day, he went beyond that and he pointed to a much greater day that would come. A greater crisis, a greater day of the Lord. And that's what every major crisis in our lives and in the world points to. But it not only reveals what is in our hearts, it not only reveals, I, I'm sorry, calls us to return to God, but it reminds us of a much greater day, right? That there's a much greater day of the Lord coming. So in other words, God uses crisis in our lives to point to the end. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Okay, what I said earlier about my leadership class, the exercise we went through, God is doing the same thing here. He's pointing to the end. He's saying, look, look at this crisis. This is the day of the Lord, but there's something greater coming. The end is coming. I want you to know this. I want you to remember this. And so this is where we pick up in Joel chapter 2. But last week we saw how Joel chapter 2 kind of shifts gears. But in this chapter, it is bookended by the day of the Lord. Okay, Joel mentions the day of the Lord in verse 1 in chapter 2. And then he mentions it again in verse 11. And I don't believe he was merely repeating what he said in chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, he talked about the day of the Lord. The locust plague is the day of the Lord. But now in chapter 2, I don't think he was just repeating that with more urgency and this different image of an army. I don't think that's what he was doing. So in other words, the army in chapter 2 are not the locusts in chapter 1. They're not the same thing. Yes, Joel used some of the locust imagery to describe the army, but they're not the same thing. Now, admittedly, people have different views on this. Okay, this is my belief. Okay, Bible scholars who know a lot more about this than I do, they disagree. But when I read through the book of Joel, I believe that starting in chapter 2, Joel is describing something else. I believe he's talking about a greater day of the Lord. Now last week I mentioned a few reasons why we might believe this. Let me just briefly mention them again. But why? Why, why is this different from chapter 1? Well, first of all, Joel's description of the invading army doesn't sound like the locusts in chapter 1. Okay? The, the behavior of the army sounds different from the behavior of the locusts. Another reason is Joel called this invading army what? The northerners. Okay, chapter 2, verse 20. The northerners. And that's a weird way to describe the locusts, especially when locusts in ancient times entered Israel where? From the south, from the east. 
Joel also mentioned cosmic signs that will accompany this army. He talked about the heavens and the earth will shake, the sun and moon will grow dark, the stars will stop shining when this army comes. What are that? What are those things? They're eschatological signs. He signs in the last days. Joel mentioned them again in chapter 2, verses 30 through 31, but he talked about the outpouring of the Spirit that will happen in the last days, and then what? The same signs, right? In the last days. And by the way, these are the exact same signs that Jesus mentioned will accompany his second coming in Matthew 24. So what am I saying? These are last day signs, eschatological signs. So why would that be mentioned along with locusts if locusts just came for that season? So for all these reasons and more, I don't think Joel was talking about the locusts again in chapter 2. With just slightly different emphasis, right? A slightly different picture. But I believe in chapter 2, he was talking about an actual army that would come in the future. And by the way, I didn't mention this last week, and I should have, but this could have been also a near-future fulfillment, a prophecy about something in the near future from Joel. But this could have been a prophecy about the Assyrian army. They came from the north into Israel. This actually happened in history. They conquered northern Israel. They even attacked Jerusalem in the 700s BC. So there was a near future fulfillment. But for the reasons I just mentioned, I believe that this was something even bigger than that, right? This was a prophecy about an eschatological army, a last day's army that will actually come into Israel and siege Jerusalem in the distant future. I'm talking about even future from us. So so there's multiple layers of fulfillment going on here. An Old Testament prophecy is often like that. I talked about this last week, but it's kind of like looking at a mountain range. But when you look at a mountain range, what do you see? You don't just see one big mountain. You see multiple mountains, right? Some are closer, some are further back. And if you're looking at the entire mountain range, it's very easy to just shift your focus, right? It's like, oh, I see the one close up. Oh, I'm going to look at the one behind. And it's very easy to just shift your focus. And the Old Testament prophets were like that. They're just telling us what they heard from God. And so in a single passage, sometimes even within a single verse, they'll just shift their focus from something near to then something far. Something near and then something far. And at times they would even overlap and blend these different time frames together. And by the way, who's the only one who can do that? God. God's the only one who can move through different time frames and accurately describe events in every single time frame. So this is the book of Joel, and here's the point that I'm trying to make. God appeared during their crisis, and he wanted the Israelites to see the end. Okay, he wasn't just talking about the locusts and just saying, oh, I'm going to help you through this time. And oftentimes, that's what we see. Okay, when we're going through t- difficulties and crises in our lives, we just want God to deal with what is going on now. But God will deal with now, but God will also appear and say, but look ahead. Right? I want you to use this opportunity to see the end. This is a reminder of where everything is headed. And so God did this to the Israelites. He pointed them to the great final day of the Lord. And it will come with sudden destruction. It will come with unstoppable judgment upon unbelievers, but also great salvation, right? Great renewal upon believers. All of it will come with cosmic signs where creation itself will be undone. But this is the great day of the Lord. And so this is what we've looked at so far. Okay, we're just picking up from what we talked about last week. But why did God reveal all of that to the Israelites? Okay, why is God revealing all of that to us even today? So that we can live a certain way in the present. So that we would live accordingly. In view of the great day of the Lord, we will live in line with that. And so last week, as we winded down the message, I asked this question. I closed with a big question. But in light of the final day of the Lord, how then should we live? Okay, how should we live? So that's the question. And so today, what I want to do is I want to see what the Bible has to say about that. And there are three different ways that I believe Joel answers this question. But how should we live? Well, first, we must examine ourselves. Second, we must turn back to the Lord. And the third, we must redeem the time. We must redeem our time. So first, examine ourselves. Okay, examine ourselves. Now, when you look at the opening verses in Joel's book, Joel makes this passionate plea to different people in his society. 
right? We already looked at that. But he called different groups of people out, like the elderly, the drunkards, the ministers, the farmers. He said in verses 2, 5, 8, 11, but he said, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. And then he said, awake, wake up, you drunkards, and weep and wail. And then he said, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. And then he said, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, you farmers. Okay, be ashamed of what you've been doing. Wail, O vine dressers. So here he is addressing these different groups. And he was calling each of these groups to do what? Repent, right? So yes, he was calling them to repent. But I believe within that call, there was something else. He was calling them to examine themselves. Right? Look, look at your life, look at your heart, and look at what is going on in your life. In the face of this crisis, examine yourself. So when he used words like hear this, awake, lament, be ashamed, there was an obvious spotlight that was shining on their hearts. Okay, that's what God was doing through his word. He was shining the spotlight on their hearts and on their lives. In fact, Joel was calling the entire nation to examine themselves in their ways. And this is because genuine repentance, genuinely turning back to God, it always includes examining yourself. See, if you don't truly look at what is going on in your life and look at your own heart, as things are happening in your life, maybe a lot of challenges and difficulties, if you're not truly looking at yourself and what is happening, then you truly cannot turn back to God. Okay, they always go together. Lamentations 3.40 says, let us test and examine our ways and then return to the Lord. See, you must examine yourself. If you say, okay, things are happening in my life, I'm going to come back to God, but you have no thought about your heart and what has happened in your life, then you have not truly returned to the Lord. Jeremiah is very clear. Let us test and examine our ways and then return to the Lord, right? You must examine your heart. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So here, Paul is giving a call to repentance, very similar to Joel. But along with that, he was also giving a warning. But Paul was warning people in the Corinthian church, because some of them were in sin, unrepentant sin, And he warned them that if you continue in this sin, then that might be evidence that you're not even saved. You might not even be in the faith. So then he said, examine yourself. How are you going to come back to the Lord? How are you going to truly repent of this sin if you don't even examine where your heart is? So turning back to God always includes self-examination. And never is this more true than in the day of crisis especially in light of the great final day. I'm talking about the day of the Lord. That is coming. See, every crisis in our lives points to that, right? It reminds us of that final day. The world as we know it, our lives every day, week in, week out, is not going to continue endlessly the same. It will come to an end, whether we go to him or he comes down to here, to us. This will not continue endlessly. So be reminded of that and examine. So crisis is when hearts and behaviors are laid bare. And what do you do when our hearts become laid bare? Okay, what do you do? Okay, why do people, why do paramedics, when somebody is injured, let's say in a terrible car accident, why do they strip the clothes off? Is it to make that injured person feel better? I mean, is that why they strip the clothes off? No, they strip the clothes off to do what? Examine them, right? What is going on here? What kind of injuries do you have? What kind of treatment do you need? And so this is exactly what God is doing in a time of crisis. He strips us bare to do what? To make us feel good? No, to examine so that we can see things now. And it's always surprising to me how deeply people can get to that place. And not everybody, but a lot of people, they do, they do this, right? They examine themselves. They begin to have a level of clarity they didn't have before when they're facing catastrophe. Okay, this is all God's grace. But I've seen this in my own life when I've gone through different things. You suddenly get this clarity about yourself. I've seen this in people in my own family. I've seen this just randomly in believers, right? Different churches I've been a part of. Now again, not everybody enters this deep reflection. Some people just move on. 
They just continue right along in their lives. But many do, right? This is God's work. I remember many years ago, this is back in LA, I knew this family who was going through this terrible suffering because their daughter had this medical condition that was kind of unknown and different physicians were trying to treat her, but her condition got worse day by day. And, and in the end, it resulted in her having to go through painful surgeries, a series of surgeries, and these were life-altering. I mean, it changed her life permanently. And I remember during that terrible time, the pastor called me and a few others to pray for this family and especially the father. And I remember we got called into this tiny little waiting room. It was a very small room. The father was sitting there and we came in and we surrounded him and we had this time of prayer. And at one point, the pastor asked the father to pray, you pray. Okay, we want to come in agreement, you pray. And immediately in that moment, you know what the father began to pray? I was surprised by this. But he just began to confess his sins. He began to just pour out his heart. He was very emotional. He was profusely confessing things he had done, things he hadn't done. He was asking God to have mercy on him, a sinner. And I was taken aback by that a little bit. I thought he was going to pray for his child who's laying in the hospital bed. And rather, he began to just profusely confess all these things in his life. And so, obviously, these were things in his heart. These are things that he had been reflecting on. But it all just came out in that moment. And so, what is this? Okay, this is the self-examination that I'm talking about. It always accompanies repentance and a return to God. And if you have no awareness of what is happening in your own heart, if you have no awareness of the way you have been living your life, then you are not going to come back to God. Okay, there is no repentance in your heart. Not yet. And so, hopefully, this should make perfect sense. Because a broken car cannot be fixed unless it's what? First checked out. If you're driving along and your car goes gong, 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 and it breaks down, you're not going to just be like, oh, stupid car, I'm going to buy a new one. Right? What are you going to do? You have to take it to the mechanic and check it out. Why? Because you know, unless I do that, it cannot be fixed. If you're failing in school, you cannot find help unless what? You go through some kind of assessment. Why are you doing so poorly? Why are you failing? If you have a Lego set and it's missing pieces, that cannot be restored until you take an inventory, right? My children know this very well. You got to take an inventory. And so we understand this. So if this is true in every other area, how much more is it true for our very souls? Created in the image of God, we cannot turn back to God unless we first undergo self-examination. Okay, we must place ourselves under the bright light of God's spirit, working through the word of God, by the spirit of God, and we need to be revealed Things are revealed already, but we need to examine what is there. You know, the Puritans were famous for their exquisite attention to the soul. People actually call them the physicians of the soul. And a lot of us, we hear about them. We're not really clear who they were, but the Puritans, they were awesome. But they were Christians in the 16th and 17th century in England. They come from England, but they stood for the gospel and biblical authority in their time. And many of them paid for it with their lives. Many of them were burned at the stake. They were beheaded. They were killed for their faith by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church had intense persecution upon the Puritans during that time. And because of that, many of them, if you know the story, they came actually here to America. And they were a critical part of the founding of this country. And so they brought their faith here. So these are the Puritans. And one in particular really examined his soul as a pastor and really led his church in that direction and many others. But he was a Puritan named Jonathan Edwards. You might have heard of him. But historians say Jonathan Edwards is the greatest theologian in American history. If you want to read the greatest theologian that America produced, just read him. Okay, it'll blow your mind. A lot of it is very hard to understand. But read him. He was also one of the greatest preachers. He was also a revivalist. He played a critical role in the Great Awakening in 1733 through 1735. I mean, he was at the spear the tip of the spear of this revival. He was also a college president. Okay, how many guys know Princeton uh, University? Okay, Ivy League, great school. Well, he was the third president of that school. The third president. And most of all, he was also a pastor who deeply cared for his people. And so as a pastor, as a disciple of Christ, he deeply examined his own soul. Okay, he knew. If I'm going to truly follow Christ, I need to examine my soul. 
if I'm going to continuously turn my heart back to God because we all drift, I must examine my soul. And he led many others in examining their souls. And he wrote this book called The Necessity of Self-Examination. And get this, but in that book, he lists 76 different questions we should ask ourselves regularly to examine ourselves. By the way, if you want that list of 76 questions, I'll email it to you. Just ask me. But 76, right? I'm not going to read them all, but let me just mention a few. And as I read these questions, they're from Edwards, examine yourself. Do I manifest an attitude of openness toward God? that would invite him to search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. That's from Psalm 139. Do I have an openness to God to search me? Are my motives for self-examination correct, that I might be led in the way everlasting? Why are you examining yourself? What are your motives? Is my heart eager to learn of any wicked way in me? Have I lived in some way which is inconsistent with my Christian profession and is not suitable for disciples and followers of Jesus? In other words, am I living like a Christian, a true Christian? Has some habitual sin in my life paved the way for a greater sin? That's a good question. When I see another who is blind to his own sin, do I look to see if I also am blind to that same sin? Or are you just criticizing, judging people? Or do you immediately ask yourself, do I have that sin too? Am I selective in my obedience? Or do I, pick, do I pick and choose which parts of my duty I will perform, neglecting those which are more distasteful to me? Another question, do I set aside time regularly to read and meditate on the word of God? Do I participate in worship by singing with my whole heart and voice? Am I frequently distracted during church, allowing my mind to wander freely? Okay, that's a pastor talking. I like that one. <laughs> Do I entertain the company of lewd and immoral persons? Okay, do you seek those people out? Do you connect with those people? Not to evangelize, not to share the gospel, but you just like that kind of people, that kind of behavior? Do I speak evil of others in gossip, slander, or flattery, or entertain such speech in conversations with others? In other words, I might not say it, but when other people are saying it, I'm fine. Yeah, tell me more. I'm fine. Am I honoring the marriage covenant by cultivating my relationship with my spouse? Have I sought to perform all those duties to which Scripture calls me by humbly serving my spouse with deliberate diligence? Do I maintain any bitterness toward my spouse, even if it seems justified? Okay, that should convey to every married person. <laughs> if a child... Do I despise my parents for their weaknesses and shortcomings? Okay, we're all children to somebody, right? Do you despise your parents for their weaknesses and shortcomings? Do I honor my parents in their old age? And then one more. Is grace flourishing in my soul? Okay, do you know the grace of God? Is it growing more and more in you? Is it growing and strong or is it languishing? Okay, he was a wise man. And look at the impact of his life. I mean, his life speaks for itself. He was probably one of, if not the greatest Christian that America has produced. So in light of the awesome and terrible day of the Lord, how should we live? It's very simple, brothers and sisters. Examine yourself. He continuously come under the bright light of the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, and examine your heart. In other words, how can you even come back to God without that? You cannot. I cannot. And by the way, this is not a call to be a navel gazer. Okay, that's somebody, my kids used to do this when they were little. They would just lift up their shirts and stare at their belly button. Okay, that's not the call here, to just lift up your shirt and stare at your belly button. Okay, it's just a black hole. You're just going to sink dip, deeper and deeper. But it is a call to bring these thoughts and this examination before the Lord. Right? David didn't say, oh, I'm going to search myself. He said, oh, Lord, you search me. Okay, I examine myself in the light of you, God. So you do it with the Lord. But this is the first way that we should respond to the great day that is coming. Okay, the second way is we must turn to the Lord. The second way we live in the light of the final day is turn to the Lord. Now, this is the heart of the book of Joel. God's, uh, God said through Joel, if you look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, okay, this is the heart of the book. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. 
You know, in the Old Testament, oftentimes the prophets call people to circumcise their hearts. In other words, cut away the thing that is not of God. Cut those things away. But this is the only place in the Old Testament people are called to do what? Rend your heart. What does rend mean? It means tear it. The way you would grab a piece of cloth or a shirt that you don't use anymore and you tear it in half. That is what God is saying. Tear your heart. Break your heart. Have a broken heart. Because this is the only place that uses that language. It's very violent, very graphic. And the only way you can return to God with all your heart is if you have a broken heart. This is why Joel said that. Again, you must examine yourself, but along with that, you must also have this broken heart. That is how you return to God. So only those with a broken heart, a torn heart, can return to God with all their hearts. But what does that mean? It basically means you are grieved over what you have done to God. You're not upset about people finding out about your sin. You're not ashamed because now you're not the Christian you thought you were. Those aren't the things that bother you. Maybe a little bit. But most of all, you are grieved by what you have done to God. You look at the way you made a promise to God when you first were saved. You committed yourself to God, right? A Christian says, yes, God, you died for me. You love me. I accept that love. I accept your gift. Okay, in that moment, you are now married to God. So you made that commitment to God, and now you look, and your heart is somewhere else. You have left the Lord, and now you are loving something else. That would be just like a man who at one point had married this woman, had children through this woman, they had this beautiful family, and then one day that relationship was broken because his heart was drawn to somebody else. So now he left the wife, left the kids, he was with somebody else, And then sure enough, that relationship withered and died as well because that was not of God. And so here he is now, a man who is lonely, he is alone, and then one day he comes across a photo, maybe in his desk, of his old family, his old wife, previous wife, and his kids. And he looks at that, and in that moment, what happens? His heart's broken. His heart's broken. It's shredded, right? It's torn. It's like, my gosh, Look at this family I used to have. Look at this wonderful relationship I used to have with this spouse. And in that moment, that is more than sadness, but that is a broken heart. And if he, if he lets that heart remain in that broken state, then that is what will bring him back. See, that's the picture of Joel. He is that the kind of broken heart you have. And again, unless you have that kind of broken heart, you will not return to God. Okay, we're just making motions, right? We're just kind of going through the motions. But this is a call to have a broken heart, a torn heart. And this is always what God is aiming for in a day of crisis. And so as we see the final day of the Lord coming, maybe we're facing our own day of the Lord. Okay, maybe it's a more personal crisis we're going through. The question is, how is your heart? Because God is wanting you to come back to him. But how is your heart? Okay, as God begins to strip things down, strip things bare, as your heart is exposed, okay, how is your heart? Do you pull back? Do you harden your heart? Or do you rend your heart? Do you let your heart be broken, shredded over what you've lost? It's not about, oh, yeah, yeah, I shouldn't be doing this. But it's like, oh, my gosh, Lord, I have lost you. Right? I've lost you. You know, I'm not going to say any more because we're going to actually look at this very verse and this very passage next week because this is in the passage, uh, the following passage from today's. But that is the question. But where is your heart? Okay, how is your heart? So that is another way we can live in light of the day of the Lord. But there's one more. Okay, there's one more. And I want to close with this. But another way that we must live in light of the day of the Lord is you must redeem the time. We must redeem the time. Now, Joel does not explicitly say this in the book, in his book, but that principle is there and is all throughout Scripture. But if we begin with the end in mind, going back to that, picture of your funeral again beginning with that end if we know where all of this is headed if we know that human history is going to come to an end this present age is going to come to an end in a great day of judgment and salvation if we know that our very lives is not going to last forever but we have a limited amount of time and that will come to an end then what are we going to do right how are we going to respond you're going to make the most of your time you will redeem the time and so this is another way, another uh, translation of redeeming the time. Okay, what, what does that mean? That means taking our minutes, our hours, our days, our weeks, and years of your life 
and you're going to trade them in for something that is eternal. Okay, that's what it means to redeem the time. Okay, it's a trade. And the time that you have is all you have. Okay, that is it. So Paul, he made the same uh, command in Ephesians 5.15, but he said, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You know, it's very interesting in this passage, but prior to this verse right here, Paul makes a series of contrasts between believers and non-believers. And he says there's a very sharp contrast between people in Christ and outside of Christ. But for example, he talks about people in Christ are in light. People outside of Christ are in darkness. He said one group is wise, the other one is unwise. He said one group is foolish, the other one understands God's will. He said to one group, you get drunk on wine, but the other group, you be filled with the Spirit. So he's making these contrasts. And what's so interesting is when you get to that verse that we just read, Ephesians 5.15, Paul gets explicit about another difference between believers and non-believers. You know what it is? It's surprising. Time management. It's time management. Believers are people who are wise in the use of their time, true wisdom. Okay, a lot of non-believers, they know how to use their time to get their goals. Okay, they know how to use their time to build a business, to make lots of money, to get degrees, to raise a family. They know how to use their time to do all of those things. But do they know how to use their time in a truly wise way in view of eternity? No, absolutely not. In fact, they're throwing their lives away. But in contrast, Paul says believers are who? They understand reality as God sees it, and they have a true wise use of their time. So Paul says time management, right? Time management is another sharp, drastic contrast between the unbeliever and the non-believer. I'm sorry, the unbeliever and the believer. It is time management. And maybe in your mind, you don't see this as a very important contrast, and yet the Bible says those who are in Christ and those who have true wisdom, this is going to mark their lives as they have a wise use of their time. In fact, Moses said that in Psalms 90. He said, oh Lord, give me a heart of wisdom, but teach me how to count my days. And so this is all throughout scripture. But God has called us to a work. There is a work that God has called you to do. And there's a set amount of time that God has given you to do that work. And I'm hoping, I'm believing that many of you as Christians, you want to glorify the Lord, right, with your life. And we kind of have this vague idea of like, okay, how do I glorify God? Maybe just think about Jesus a lot, you know, pray, I don't know, share the gospel to my friend at work. And we have these vague ideas, but I'll tell you very clearly, this is how you glorify the Lord. Okay, what did Jesus say in the high priestly prayer, John 17? He said, Father, I have glorified you here on the earth. He said that right before going to the cross. How? By finishing the work you gave me to do. So that's how you glorify the Lord with your life. How? God has given you a work to do, amen? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You have been saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. Why? Because of Jesus and what he did for you, and then for what? To do the works that he has prepared for us beforehand. Right, there's a work for you, there's a work for me. And so then how do you glorify God? By accomplishing the work God has given you to do. And by the way, you don't have forever to do that. There is a very limited amount of time for you to do that work. And so you know what this means? That means God has a calling on your life, and it doesn't have to be like what I'm doing. It doesn't have to be like what other people in ministry are doing. It's your own calling. You do what you're doing right now, but you have a work within that context for God. And you have a very limited time to do it. And so this means unless you understand time management and managing your time, you cannot fulfill God's calling on your life. In fact, I'll put it like this. If you're not serious about your time and what you do with your time, you're not serious about God's call in your life. You are not serious. You know, I've addressed this before in the past, but I need to talk about this again. But I, I, I love this quote by this one pastor, but he said, to squander your call I'm sorry, to squander time is to squander life. I don't know why this quote is not here. I had it earlier today. Okay, here it is. Money is power, but time is life. To squander time is to squander life. But more painfully is to squander destiny. So what is he saying? This pastor is very right. 
But he's saying, if you don't understand your time management, you're not serious about God's calling on your life. Okay, money is power, but time is life. See, a lot of us, we're focused on making money. Okay, we're concerned about that, and I've been there as well, as a father of a family and three children. And we're concerned about that, but far more valuable than money is what? It's your time. Why? Because money, you can lose absolutely all of it and make it all back. You can lose it again, make it all back. Money comes and goes all the time. But your time, what happens? You lose a year, it's gone. You lose five years, it's gone forever. You lose 10 years of your life, it's gone forever. Why? Because we have a set time. You know, God in his sovereignty, he appointed your birth. You had nothing to do with it. You are born when you were born because God appointed that. But we don't think about this you also have an appointed day of your death. You have an appointed day of your death. And God in his sovereignty knows exactly the hour, the minute, and the second you will die, and we will not live a second beyond that. It actually says that in the word of God. I can't think of the verse right now, but it says that. I believe it's in the Proverbs. But we cannot, no, I'm sorry, the book of Job. We cannot live even a second beyond the appointed time of our death. So that means we have a fixed amount of time to do what? To glorify God, by finishing the work he has given us. And so time is very, very valuable, brothers and sisters. And I say all of this as a fellow journeyman, right? I'm on the path with you. I have struggles as well. But I remember when I was younger, I I tended to do things to save money because that's what kind of was important to me because I had a very limited amount of money. So I would like wash my car, right? I wouldn't take it somewhere else. I would wash my own car, save money. I would change my own oil. I would even cut my own grass, right? I wouldn't pay anybody to do these things. Why? Because money was important. But as we grow older, as I grew older, what do I do now? I go, oh man, pay somebody else to do it. It's my time, right? Time is valuable. Money comes and goes, but time, you never get it back. So what is the Bible saying? A heart of wisdom, the true believer who sees the reality as it is. Okay, I'm going to go to heaven. God has given me a a work to do. I have a fixed amount of time. This is how I glorify God on this earth. This is what Jesus said. You have given me a work and I've completed it. I've glorified you. We have the same call. And if that is true and we have a limited amount of time, then I must redeem my time. I must make the most of every opportunity. And brothers and sisters, this is probably one of the most practical things that I could talk about here. But I'm talking about your seconds, your minutes, your hours, your days, your weeks, your months, your years. I'm talking about your time daily, every day when you wake up. You have a set number of hours. We know there's 24 hours in a day. There's seven days in a week. If you multiply, there's 160 hours a week. Every week, God, by his grace, gives you 168 hours. What are you going to do with those 168 hours? I love this analogy, but one pastor said, imagine those 168 hours, like $168. For some reason, we understand money far better than time. So imagine them like $168. What are you going to do with that? Well, really, there's only three things you can do. First, you could just waste it all. And people do that with their money, but they do it even more with their time. They just waste it, right? They just blow it on stupid things. doesn't even return anything. They just blow it, right? They eat all this food. They just, you know, throw it away on video games. They just blow all this money. Well, that's exactly how people are with their time. They get 168 hours every week by God's grace, and there's a fixed amount, right? God's not going to give it to you forever. He's only going to give it to you for a certain amount of time, and you got it now. Again, you're going to get it tomorrow, and then people, some people just blow it. They waste it. Other people, they spend it. They're just busy living life. They spend it. So $168, they just spend it on paying bills, paying the rent, you know, uh, getting their car insurance paid. They just spend it on things, eating out with friends, and so nothing terrible, but they're busy, right? But they give no thought to it. It's just whatever is there, I just spend it on that. And again, that's how people spend their time. If there's really very little thought. I just do whatever is in front of me. I just got to do that thing. I got to take care of life, right? So they spend their 168 hours. But then some, they invest it. Okay, they invest it. And again, a lot of people understand investing their money, but they don't understand investing time, right? You've got to invest your time. Again, money can go, it comes back. You could lose it all. You could be on the streets, and then the next year you're back, right? You just get a different job, and you're back. But your time, you never get it back. And so what are you going to do with 168 hours? You must invest it. This is what Paul's talking about. Redeem the time because the days are evil. That word redeem is borrowed from the marketplace. But again, it means to trade something in. You're trading in these 168 hours for something that is eternal. 
And so this is why, again, Moses says, Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get of heart of wisdom. Do you know God, in God's mind, in his understanding, he knows exactly the day of our birth and death, right? I just said that. And so in God's mind, he knows exactly how many days we have left. There's a counter. It's counting down. And by sheer grace and mercy, God does not let us know, right? What if we were born, all of us, with a counter on our chest, and we have a certain number, and it counts down every day, right? How would you live your life? In honesty, how would you live your life? There's a counter. There's a certain number of days. Maybe you have, I don't know, 90,000 days, and every day is counting down. Well, God knows. In God's mind, there's a counter. It's counting down until the day of your death when you're going to stand before him. And by his mercy and grace, he doesn't let us know. But what he does tell us is that end is coming. So be wise, right? Be wise. You know, I'm going to close with this, but going back to Jonathan Edwards, I mean, he was such a wise man who made such an impact with his life. But he must have read that book on leadership. No, I'm just joking. But, but he must have read it because he said something very similar. But he said, imagine laying on your deathbed. But he said, even as a young person, imagine that because begin with the end in mind. But he said, what would you be thinking about? He said, I'll tell you, I'm a pastor. I've talked to people laying on their deathbed. You will not be thinking about how much more money you could have made. For sure, you're not going to think about that. You will not think about how much more property you could have bought, what kind of houses you could have had. You will not think about the friends you could have spent more time with, maybe, right? Or more you know, people or the experiences you could have had traveling the world. I'm paraphrasing Edwards here. But you will not think about any of that. But what you would think about is, if I could have just have a little bit more time. But I'm facing death right now. Maybe you're terminally ill you know the end is near. You're going to be thinking, if I could just have a little bit more time. See, in those moments, clarity comes. Okay, what is the most important thing that comes into sharp focus? is time. That's all you're going to think about. I just want a little bit more time with my loved ones, my family. I just want a little bit more time to serve the Lord. Hopefully, that's what you're thinking. I just want a little bit more time. And even my family, we have people that we know who are terminally ill. And that's what they all talk about. I just want a little bit more time. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, they're not the only ones with a limited time. We all are. We just have a little bit more than they do. We are all limited. But Edwards didn't stop there, but he went on and he said, now imagine all the souls who are now condemned forever in hell. And they are now sealed in judgment in hell. What do you think they are going to be crying out for all eternity? What do you think they would be crying out? If I could just have one more moment to come back to this life and hear the gospel and receive Christ and maybe do something with my life for God and his glory. If I could just have one moment more, right? Just one more day. That's all I ask. Maybe even just half a day. Maybe just even an hour to come back here and just hear it one more time. Edward said that is what they're going to be thinking. That is what they are thinking. Again, it's not about what they could have had, what they... It's about time, right? They just want a little bit more time. And so if that's true for people about to die or people who have already passed on, then what a glorious grace that we can actually think about these things now. Amen? Can we deem the time, brothers and sisters? In light of eternity, what are you doing? What am I doing? Tomorrow, we're going to get a fresh new gift of 168 hours. What are you going to do with that? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you, Lord, and I just pray and ask, Father, that you would please help us, Father, to have this heart of wisdom, to understand, Father God, how you are wanting us to live this life. And I know, Father God, not everybody hears, but I pray you would have grace upon at least these people here and everybody hearing online, that you would have mercy and grace upon our church. I know, Father, that the mass the vast majority of the world have no care or concern whatsoever about how they are living their lives and spending their time. They have no awareness of what is within their hearts. There's no sense of self-examination. There's no desire to tear their hearts and return to the Lord. There's no perspective whatsoever to invest their time and to redeem it for eternal things. But I pray for the people here, Father, that we would have a heart of wisdom. 
So Father God, I pray for that. I ask, Father, for your mercy and your grace. Lord, you are truly a good God. Thank you, Father. Oh, we worship you, Father. Lord, I don't think we realize, I don't realize oftentimes how close we are to eternity. We're close. Not everybody lives to 85 years old. That's just the truth. And even if we do, that's not that far away. That's like a mist that appears on a cold morning and then vanishes within a few seconds. That is not far away. Every old person says the same thing. I don't know where all the time went. Old people are not a different breed of people. They were at one point young people just like you, just like all of us. They were just young people, just like us, living life. And one day they're old and they say, I don't know where all the time went. That's why we should respect our elders. Because one day you're going to be there, God willing. You don't think you're going to be old in the blink of an eye? You'll be old. Some of us, we won't even make it there. In God's sovereign wisdom and love, He will bring early. But Lord God, wherever we are limited in what we have. So Father God, we thank you. Father God, we, we come before you. We worship you, Father. Give us a heart of wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord. Um, as we do every week, let's respond uh, to his word. Whether it's examining yourself, whether it's tearing your heart, being broken over what you have done to the Lord who died for you. Or maybe it's redeeming the time. Starting to have a different perspective on how you use your minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years. But let's just come before the Lord and bring it before him. 